the devastation is unprecedented and extensive. Welcome back. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something ain't right. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle with you. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Also in California, in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI, Round Mountains, KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, and Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP. In Grand Rapids on WPRR, in New Orleans on WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN. In Fayetteville, Arkansas on KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR. And Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe for you every day on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth. Five days a week, I am Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow says me from bradblog.com thank you very much for joining us today and my thanks to the delightful nicole sandler for filling in for us for a few days last week we greatly appreciate the opportunity for a much needed pause a much needed break in the action uh, amid the insanity yes indeed but the insanity did not stop while we were away the <laughs> news tsunami continued unfortunately the biggest story of course at the moment is the monster hurricane now set to potentially ravage uh, a big chunk of the U.S. eastern seaboard from Florida, potentially even up to Maine, depending on a number of elements over the next several days. We will be joined by meteorologist Guy Walton momentarily to discuss all of that and more. But before this uh, bit of holiday weekend news slips away into the ether entirely, as frankly it would have anyway, even if it hadn't been a holiday weekend, uh, but I just a few quick words on the latest mass shooting out of Texas, which in a sane world would frankly still be front page news. But it's almost entirely gone as we go to air today. Uh, the Odessa Police Department in Texas on Sunday identified the man who killed seven people and wounded 22 others in a shooting spree. In West Texas on Saturday, he was a 36-year-old white American male citizen who had been fired from his trucking job just hours before his killing rampage. The man who uh, we will join Odessa Police Chief uh, Michael Gerke in refusing to name him here because, as the chief said in a weekend news conference, he was, quote, not going to give him any notoriety for what he did. Good call, Chief. 
the man had been arrested back in 2001 for criminal trespass and evading arrest, according to public records. His record also includes a 2018 traffic citation for a federal motor carrier uh, safety violation, according to uh, county court records. He was pulled over by Texas troopers in Midland, Texas, on Saturday afternoon for failing to use his signal. According to police, he then shot at them with what they described as an AR-type weapon, and he sped away, driving on streets and the highway, spraying bullets randomly at residents and motorists. Among the wounded were a 17-month-old girl who is now thankfully said to be out of the hospital and recovering at home, as well as three law enforcement officers. Those fatally shot were between 15 years and 57 years old. According to the uh, police chief, one of them was a young mail carrier whose truck was hijacked by the man. She is survived by her twin sister, who was speaking to her on the phone at the time that she was shot and killed by this guy. It is still unclear exactly what the man's motive was. Though uh, AP, just as we go to air, uh, literally seconds ago here, uh, says that uh, law enforcement tell AP that the Texas shooter failed a 2014 background check due to, quote, a mental health issue. Nonetheless, for some reason, in some way, he was able to get his hands on an AR-type weapon, as is so easily done in this nation. Um, the uh, it's uh, As I say, it's unclear what the man's motive was. The attack was during the busy Labor Day weekend, and it put people on edge in Texas, yet again in a state where a gunman killed 22 uh, just one month ago at a Walmart in El Paso. That was only a month ago. Yep. I don't think not even CNN reports that and this is what caught my eye here on this uh, AP report um, uh, from uh, CNN reports that FBI special special agent in charge, Christopher Combs, said that his federal agency responds to Texas frequently. He said the FBI is, quote, here now almost every other week supporting our local and state partners on active shooters where almost every two weeks an active shooter in this country, he said. Veronzo, uh, I'm sorry, Veronica Alonzo, a neighbor of the shooter, told CNN that he approached her last month while holding a rifle and yelled at her for leaving trash in a nearby dumpster. Apparently that sort of thing is perfectly legal in the great open carry state of Texas. No reason to call the police on that if somebody shows up at your house with a uh, with a rifle and uh, yells at you about using a dumpster. Uh, Alonzo also said that the man frequently fired from a structure on top of his house at night, shooting into his yard, and then would retrieve dead animals from it. I guess that's also perfectly fine in Texas these days. You grew up in Texas, Desi Doyen. Is that the sort of thing that goes on there on a regular basis? Well, it is now. Yeah. Now that Texas has the most lax gun laws in the United States, yes. Yep. And they are even more lax as of Sunday. So the shooting happened in Texas, where, by the way, four of the ten deadliest mass shootings in modern U.S. history have happened. Uh, this was on Saturday, just hours before a series of new firearm laws went into effect in Texas on Sunday. And yes, those new laws loosened 
the already very loose gun restrictions in the state of Texas to allow now, among other things, weapons on school grounds. What could go wrong there? In apartments, in places of worship. Vice President Mike Pence over the weekend as Trump was out playing golf again with the this shooting and a hurricane threatening the entire eastern seaboard. Uh, Pence said that he and Donald Trump are determined to work with Congress, quote, to address and confront this scour- scourge of mass atrocity in our country. And, by the way, if you believe that, you must be a brain-dead Trump supporter who will obviously believe anything. For his part on Sunday... Donald Trump spoke to reporters uh, as his chopper was warming up to take him away to play golf or bring him back. I don't know. He spoke to reporters and he said absolutely nothing for pretty much a full minute and a half on the matter regarding what, if anything, that he and his Republican pals in Congress actually plan or hope to do. I've been speaking to a lot of senators. We've been speaking to a lot of House members. A lot of Republicans, a lot of Democrats, and people want to do something. So we're going to see this uh, really hasn't changed anything. We're doing a package, and we'll see what it all, how it comes about. It's coming about right now, and a lot of people are talking about it. And that's irrespective of what happened yesterday in Texas. But we're looking at a lot of different things. We're looking at a lot of different bills, ideas, concepts. It's been going on for a long while. Background checks. I will say that for the most part, sadly, if you look at the last four or five going back even five or six or seven years, for the most part, as strong as you make your background checks, they would not have stopped any of it. Mm -hmm. So it's a big problem. It's a mental problem. It's a big problem. Yeah, it's a mental problem, all right. Uh, speaking, He's speaking to a lot of people about a lot of things because people want to do a lot of things, and there's many things that people may be doing, and people are all talking about all of these things. A lot of those things. Yeah, that he's uh, thinking about uh, doing and talking about with many, many people. That's the plan from your president. On a Sunday afternoon, for his part, Texas Governor Greg Abbott commented on the frequency of high-profile shootings in his state since he took office. Abbott said, I've been to too many of these events. Yeah, you think? He named several similar incidents, the Dallas shootings that killed police officers, the Sutherland Springs shooting, the Santa Fe High School shooting, then, of course, the El Paso shooting, now the Odessa Midland uh, shooting. He said, I am heartbroken by the crying of the people in the state of Texas. I am tired of the dying of the people of Texas. Too many Texans are in mourning, he said. Too many Texans have lost their lives. The status quo in Texas is unacceptable and action is necessary needed, said Republican Governor Greg Abbott. Well, really, Governor, really? What kind of action? What kind of action do you have in mind? Anything more than talking to some people about doing some things? Got anything specific in mind? And when are you going to take that action? Action like maybe loosening gun restrictions even further in Texas to make it even easier to kill even more innocent people, Governor? Is that what you're thinking about? I mean, if only there was someone in your state with the power to actually do something about that status quo in Texas that you are so tired of, that is so unacceptable. Someone who wasn't a coward in the thrall of the terrorist-enabling 
National Rifle Association. Someone, anyone, anyone who actually gave more of a damn about the people of Texas that he is sworn to defend and protect rather than defending and protecting his own cowardly, sniveling, sad little political career. Who might that be, Governor Abbott? Also on Sunday, according to HuffPost, the governor expressed dismay that the mass shooter who killed seven people in West Texas managed to buy an AR-style weapon in the state, even though he had a criminal history and apparently did not register for a background check. When reporters asked if Abbott would consider banning assault rifles, given the frequency of their appearance in mass shootings, the governor said, quote, it's one of the things legislators are already talking about. Well, that's good. But did he call for such a thing? Of course not, because he's a coward and because the NRA money is not free after all. Not exactly a profile in courage from the governor of Texas, but we have come to expect no less from him, specifically in Texas, but also all of his Republican pals across the country, the other Republican governors across the country, all of the Republicans in the Senate and the Congress, and of course in the White House where they really want to do something because people are talking about doing something and a lot of people are talking about something. Meanwhile, by the way, while guns ha uh, may now legally be brought into uh, onto school grounds in Texas, a Catholic school in Tennessee is banning Harry Potter books from its school library for all pre-K through eighth grade students. One of the school's pastors says that the spells and curses presented in the fictional children's series are legit and could present problems for kids who read the books. Desi, you read those books. Have you tried any of those spells? Do they work? <laughs> Let me know if they do, because I've got some ideas. <laughs> I've got some uses for some of those curses and spells. Sad to say, they don't work. <laughs> they don't work? All right. Well, so anyway, uh, let's just to recount here, banning books in uh, southern states, books which have never killed anybody, that is just fine, despite First Amendment free speech rights, but banning assault rifles that kill tens of thousands of people each year in this country. Well, that would be an outrageous affront to, I guess, the Second Amendment and its right to, by the way, a well-regulated militia or something. At least that was uh, what I took away from Ted Cruz's 30-tweet tweet storm about all of this when he talked about, you know, the right to bear arms and the Second Amendment, but forgot to mention the part about the well-regulated part of the Second Amendment. Conveniently, he left that out. 30 tweets, but he forgot the uh, very first part of the Second Amendment. Go figure. Our friend from uh, Ring of Fire, Farron Cousins, tweeted, So books are bad, but assault rifles are still okay? Yeah, that'll keep the kids safe. WTF Politics 1 replied to uh, both uh, Farron and me by saying the GOP will ban wands before they ban AR-15s. But hey, speaking of deadly things that we could do something about, but that Republicans have been working very hard to ignore for years, no matter how many people will die due to the fact that the GOP is no longer a legitimate political party and has now been 100% co-opted by deadly corporate interests. Speaking of all of that, there is that hurricane off the East Coast that could ravage much of it, depending on how Dorian rolls in the next couple of days after it hung out over the Bahamas. 
catastrophically as Category 5 for a long, long time. Climate guy Guy Walton joins us next on the broadcast to discuss that and much more. And if time allows, we have a follow-up on an election-related story that we have been covering for a while that few others have been covering, and we may actually have some good news for a happy change on that. Oh, thank God. If we can get to it. All of that is hopefully coming up on today's broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. Hey, this is Brad. Do you enjoy your non-corporatized, commercial-free broadcast? Yeah, me too. But we need your help to stay that way. Please consider supporting the investigative blogging, broadcasting, and muckraking that we do here on the Bradcast and the Green News Report and bradblog.com with a donation. It's easy. Stop by bradblog.com donate and drop a few dollars in the tip jar. You can make a one-time contribution or an automatic monthly donation of any amount you like. It's easy. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you'll help me and Desi stay on the air to continue our troublemaking and muckraking without the corporate influence of anyone. Got it? Thanks. Stop by bradblog.com donate to help us out today. August summer night. Soldiers passing by, listening to the wind of change. Wind of change indeed. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. As we go to air today, Hurricane Dorian has been downgraded to a Category 2 storm, which is still substantial with... 110 mile per hour winds, but if you're living in the Bahamas, which took the full Category 5 brunt of the storm beginning several days ago and is still facing some of those winds as of airtime, even as the storm is finally picking up some speed in its westerly and northerly movement, uh, if you're in the Bahamas, uh, that downgrade to Category 2 is certainly very good news indeed. Aerial photos now trickling out of the island of Abaco in the Bahamas look to quote U.S. National Hurricane Center scientist Eric Blake as if a bomb went off. Here's what the prime minister of the Bahamas, Hubert Minnis, had to say uh, just earlier today. The initial reports from Abaco is that the devastation is unprecedented and extensive. They are deeply worrying. The images and videos we are seeing are heartbreaking. Many homes, businesses, and other buildings have been completely or partially destroyed. This is the time for us as Bahamians to show our love, our care, and our compassion for our fellow brothers and sisters. Indeed, U.N. and Red Cross relief officials are now rushing to deal with an unfolding humanitarian crisis in uh, Hurricane Dorian's wake. After the most powerful storm ever to hit the Bahamas, devastated thousands of homes, crippled hospitals, trapped people in attics. At least five deaths were reported, with the full scope of the disaster still a long way from being known. Relief workers reported scenes of utter ruin, while emergency authorities struggled to reach victims amid conditions still too dangerous even for rescue workers. 
urging people to hang on. Practically parking over the Bahamas for a day and a half, Dorian pounded the islands of Abaco and Grand Bahama with winds up to 185 miles per hour and torrential rain before it finally moved into open waters on a course for Florida. In the Bahamas, Red Cross spokesperson Matt Cochran said that more than 13,000 houses or about 45% of the homes in Grand Bahama and Abaco were believed to have been severely damaged or destroyed. U.N. officials said more than 60,000 people on the hard-hit islands will need food, and the Red Cross had said some 62,000 will need clean drinking water. Bahamian officials received a, quote, tremendous number of calls from people in flooded homes and desperate callers trying to find loved ones left uh, messages with local radio stations. Happily, they still have local radio stations in the Bahamas, which are very important for events like this. One station said it got reports of a five-month-old baby stranded on a roof and a woman with six grandchildren who cut a hole in a roof to escape rising floodwaters. At least two storm shelters flooded themselves. Health Minister Dwayne Sands said the Dorian rendered the main hospital on Grand Bahama unusable while the hospital in Marsh Harbor in the Abaco Islands was in need of food, water, medicine and surgical supplies. He said crews were trying to airlift five to seven kidney failure patients from the island who had not received dialysis since Friday. The Grand Bahama Airport, however, is still reported to be under six feet of water. Over two million people, meanwhile, live along the coast in Florida, Georgia and North and South Carolina were all warned to evacuate. But in Florida, at least we may have some encouraging news today as meteorologists now seem to confirm that the threat of a direct hit on Florida had all but evaporated. But Dorian is still expected to pass dangerously close to Georgia and South Carolina and perhaps strike North Carolina on Thursday or Friday. North Carolina, by the way, has an election in just a few days. So uh, once again, they may be disrupted by uh, another storm in North Carolina. The coastline from north of West Palm Beach, Florida, through Georgia, was expected to get three to six inches of rain with 9 inches in places, while the Carolinas could get 5 to 10 inches and 15 inches in other spots, according to the National Hurricane Center. While that does not sound great, NASA satellite imagery through Monday night showed some spots in the Bahamas had gotten as much as 35 inches of rain, according to meteorologist Ryan Maui. Scientists say that climate change generally has been fueling more powerful and wetter storms like this, but that linking any specific hurricane to global warming would require more detailed study, which is sure to come in the days ahead. Joining us now for the latest on all of this and much more is our friend Guy Walton, a 30-year Weather Channel veteran based in Atlanta, Georgia, where he may feel the effects of this storm over the next uh, day or two himself, where he is. Uh, he's also a tracker of daily weather and climate extremes at his, at his website, GuyOnClimate.com. And, by the way, he's the author with Nick Walker of the delightfully snarky illustrated children's book and climate primer entitled World of Thermo, Thermometer Rising. Guy Walton, welcome back to the broadcast, sir. Well, thanks for having me back, Brad. 
Good to have you here. Uh, you you have been, uh, although I wish the circumstances were better, though there is some uh, some bright spots we're looking at. Uh, before we get to Dorian, though, you've been keeping this detailed diary track on the hurricane for the past week or so now with this ongoing devastation of this rather unusual storm. Uh, nonetheless, you still opened your Day 7 diary on Tuesday with the note, quote, no matter what happens with Dorian, Tropical rainforest fires are more of a concern for the long-term health of the planet. So before we get to Dorian, given this still unfolding disaster, why did you think it was important to open your diary with that thought about the fires in the rainforest? Well, Brad, because I think the media in general, is, uh, as they usually do, they, mm -hmm. they're taking their eye off the main ball of what's happening with the tropical rainforest around the planet. And we're going to have hurricanes like this. We've had to, had had them through the 20th century and 21st mm -hmm. for um, a long time to come. Mm -hmm. But as far as carbon rising goes, rainforests are critical in keeping carbon down. So, um, yes, uh, actually, as rainforests burn and there's less of them, as far as aerial coverage goes, mm -hmm. that will mean that there will be stronger hurricanes. And that's that's mm. the the main thing that uh, we should be looking at now. Uh, yeah, and that does make sense. Uh, as the rainforest disappears, we're still going to get even more and worse and larger storms like the one we're seeing now. On uh, on Monday, guy. Uh, you had uh, sort of confidently declared on Twitter, uh, based on all the various models that you were looking at out there, that the uh, you said the eye wall of Dorian won't bodily move into Florida. And I hoped you were correct, but uh, I replied to you on, on Twitter and said, uh, ask if you're sure about that. You said confidently, yes. And now it looks like you may be right, but at the time you had uh, you had included a, a graphic with all of the various models out there where it could potentially go. They all showed the storm staying off of the Florida coast, except for that one model that is called the TABS model. What, what does TABS stand for, and why were you so confident that that wasn't the one out of about 10 different models that would, would have turned out to have been correct? Okay, um... That I do not know. I don't know what it stands for, but mm -hmm. most all the models were showing that it would be moving up towards the Carolinas and away from Florida. Mm -hmm. And now my thinking is that Dorian will affect Wilmington perhaps just about as badly as Florence did uh, last year, minus the flooding. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, Wilmington could see Category 1 uh, hurricane force winds, as well as and it'll be even worse as you mm -hmm. get toward Outer Banks. But generally, when we start looking and seeing such a great consensus with just one small outlier, mm -hmm. then we're pretty confident as forecasters that the hurricane's not going to uh, hit a given area. Is there any one uh, group that has a particularly better track record than any other that we should rely on in cases like this when we see these uh, predictions out here? Or do they all sometimes sort of sometimes get it right, sometimes not get it right uh, at about the same level of variance? As far as the direction goes, um, yes. So the European model has historically over the last decade or so had mm -hmm. a better track record. Although, uh, to start out with, the European model had the hurricane moving right over South Florida, right over the most populated areas mm -hmm. of the state. And I had asked, asked my uh, 
blog is this a $250 billion question, is, is where the storm's going to be going. Mm-hmm. And indeed, devastation like we're seeing over the Bahamas now could be seen over Miami. It very well could if the storm had actually just deviated by about 100 miles. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not that hard to realize that Florida, as well as most of the other coastal areas, are in a lot of trouble. This, and actually I want to talk about uh, the trouble that Florida might be in, whether it's from this storm or another one, but sticking for the moment to this storm, I, you know, I'm, I'm a civilian here. I'm a layman on these things, so I don't really understand. But it seems to me that there was a lot of very strange anomalies here from the speed at which the storm grew after uh, it, it skirted Puerto Rico and then slammed into the Bahamas. It went like overnight from Cat 1 to Cat 5 to this very, very slow westward uh, uh, movement where it hung over the Bahamas for like a day and a half. Uh, and then it's unpredictable path, which seemed to change every few days. What's what's up with that? Why are we having so many anomalies in a storm like this that used to be uh, fairly predictable in the past? Is something different here? Is this unusual? Well, yes, it is unusual, Brad. Um, steering currents are being affected by climate change. And as you know, the more warmth we get into the atmosphere the weaker those steering currents are going to be, particularly during the uh, and middle and latter part of the summer. Mm-hmm. So, yes, you can get your Harveys, and now Dorian, Dorian actually stalled over uh, the Bahamas, mm-hmm. and in this case, that was bad for, or extremely bad for uh, the Bahamas, but good for Florida in that it didn't, didn't move in. It's very unusual to have a system just stall like that right off the mm-hmm. coast of Florida. Yeah, it was really weird. I, at one point, uh, I saw notes of alarm that it was moving at one mile per hour. Then others people were saying it's you know stalled entirely. I don't remember that happening with the storm, although you mentioned Harvey. That did sort of happen uh, with Harvey uh, over Houston, I guess. Was that last year or the year before, uh, two years ago? So these steering currents you're talking about, these are the things that we used to rely on for uh, hurricane models that we would we could assume they would push them along in a certain direction, but now those steering currents are all wrong or all or have all changed due to climate change, as you see it. Well, they've changed subtly, and uh, I will point out uh, there's an Inside Climate News article that just came out showing a nice little graph about how very subtly over the last two mm-hmm. decades there's been a slowing of tropical system or statistical slowing. Mm-hmm. The forward speed is not what it used to be. Mm-hmm. And that's thanks to the change in the climate? Yes, sir. You suggest that Dorian, um, in one of your diaries, I think on Tuesday, uh, or maybe it's Monday, uh, that as close as it looked, you know, just a few days ago to a, a sort of a possible direct hit on Florida as a Category 5, that that should serve as a warning for Floridians to start moving away from the coast. And I think, well, the first question is why, although that uh, maybe has an obvious answer, but w- what what do you see as having changed over the past 20 or 30 years since Andrew hit, I guess, in 92, uh, I think it was, that, would, that only now underscores the need for folks to move away from the Florida coast? And frankly, Guy, 
do you see any possibility of that becoming a reality given the billions of dollars of real estate and tourism, et cetera, that would not exist but for that coastline? Well, we're just getting more Category 4s and 5s coming in in the Atlantic Basin or forming, and they're forming quite rapidly. Mm -hmm. Uh, Dorian formed uh, near Puerto Rico, and we were very concerned about, of course, Puerto Rico because of Maria kidding, and it it did give them some um, tropical storm force winds, but it was only a Cat 1 at the time, and it it really didn't take it more than about 24 hours to become a Cat 5. Mm -hmm. And let's see, we've had four out of the last five years uh, seeing uh, Cat Five, so we had we've had Dorian, Michael, Maria, Irma, and Matthew, and two of the storms, uh, Michael and Maria, hit the United States as five. Right, I, and 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 by the way, Donald Trump says he has uh, never even heard of a Category Five storm, although he says that sort of every year now for the past two or three years. Every time a Category Five storm comes up now. Uh, over the past two and a half years that he's been in office. But setting aside the fact that he is uh, sort of pretending he's never heard of it, if only, uh, you know, because he doesn't listen to the world's best scientists that he actually has access to, you've made the case in the past, Guy, that we actually need a Category 6. Is that true? Because Category 5, that's that's it, no matter how fast these winds get. And I think the winds over Bahamas were 185 miles per hour. Should there be another category, or are all of these categories sort of misleading anyway? Because now, you know, oh, it's only a Category 2, nothing to worry about in, uh, in, in Georgia, North Carolina, South Carolina, as people will see it, because they tend to see these you know, downgrades as if, uh, oh, they're, they're safe, there's nothing to worry about. Or do we put too much pressure on, uh, or too much status on these uh, category designations? Well, that's a yes and no uh, answer. Uh, don't forget that Florence last year was a Category 1 or downgraded to a Category 1 uh, hurricane mm-hmm. when everybody thought it might move in as a Category 4 storm to uh, into Florence. And uh, it produced quite a bit of damage and, mm-hmm. of course, flooding. was nothing to sneeze at. A 1 is not anything to sneeze at. Even a uh, strong tropical storm is, is nothing Mm-hmm. If that's that's something that you can get a lot of damage from. So categories are basically uh, measuring a stick that we use to just, as meteorologists and scientists, to gauge the strength of, uh, of hurricanes. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but by doing that, it can be a little bit misleading to the general public, because if you've got a, a, a five coming in, Mm-hmm. And say it gets downgraded all the way to a one, and you're on the coast thinking there's going to be nothing to it. Right. Then all of a sudden, the core of a one comes right inland on your house. Mm-hmm. Well, you're going to be uh, pretty darn mad thinking that perhaps you didn't get enough warning. But, but yes, you did. It's still a hurricane's a hurricane. It's, it, you still got hurricane force winds. Mm-hmm. And, of course, if it stays there, if a hurricane, a uh, Category 1, stays there for a day and a half, like we saw in the Bahamas or we saw with Harvey uh, in Houston, it's still going to be devastating. But uh, it's Category 6, are you the only one calling for that, or has there been more and more calls for that as these storms seem to be getting uh, larger and stronger? Well, uh, Dr. Michael Mann and I are in agreement that we should have a 6 with winds maybe starting up around 180, 190 mile per hour miles per hour, and there's been some debate, and some meteorologist I know of has said, no, we we don't want to do that, we just want to stick with the, the category, so that's just a debate within the uh, scientific community happening now, and, and a 
make and mm-hmm. more common. And, and as water temperatures rise, we'll just see how strong they can go. Mm-hmm. Although even as warm as the Atlantic Basin is right now, uh, winds topping about 190 miles per hour are just about impossible. So, so right now, it's, the, the categories we have are probably okay, and we'll just have to wait maybe two or three more decades uh, for people who are who've long come after us to see if they want to add a Category 6. And I know that it's likely too early to uh, cite the direct fingerprints of climate change here on this specific storm, but I, I know that's already being studied and will be, of course, in the future. Uh, where would you look, Guy Walton, for, uh, for ties to the climate crisis in studying this particular storm? In other words, where do you see the likely and or possible connections from your, uh, from your early observations here and with your experience in, in studying these things? Oh, that would be two direct things. That would be how fast it ramped up from uh, being a one to a five, mm-hmm. and then how long it remained a five. I think it remained a five pretty pretty long. Mm-hmm. And actually, the fact that it uh, did slow to crawl and just to stall. Those two things, two or three things. And and that's it for this one. And and before uh, Dorian, which sort of came out of nowhere also, I would think that that would be something worth studying because it didn't seem like there was, uh, you know, a week or so ago, it looked like the Atlantic was clear and then all of a sudden Dorian shows up. Uh, but be- even before that, this was already a summer of extremes. And I know you cover that at your website, guyonclimate.com. Uh, from the hottest month ever recorded on planet Earth back in uh, July this year to the record temperatures and the fires in the Arctic that we mentioned, and and, uh, and now, of course, in the Amazon. As someone who covers these extremes every day, and I don't know how you do it, Guy, but was this summer uh, and this year, in fact, as troubling as it seemed or uh, really no different from previous years of late at this point? Oh, I actually think it's just about as troubling as 2018 was, if not more so. And don't forget, I will say before we move on, Mm -hmm. don't forget that this hurricane season is only partially over and as warm as, I put this on my blog today, as warm as it looks like the fall is going to be over North America, that would behoove or or, or, or develop, the, the, the warm atmosphere would still be there for storms going well, well, well into the fall, just like uh, Dorian should maybe affect the United States. It might not be five, so but it could mm-hmm. be lower. And the only other thing I would add is that please help the people of, Bahamas. I think that once news gets out mm-hmm. about, about what's happening there, uh, 60,000 people lived on the Grand Bahama Island, and where the airport is, the airport's underwater. Yeah. It might be underwater for good. And so we have a situation in the Bahamas exactly like we had back in uh, Maria. Mm-hmm. Even though the Bahamas is not part of the United States, it's still probably just about, a, people are just about as dire straits as they were uh, in Maria back in 2017. In Puerto Rico, yeah. yeah. Uh, Guy, before, uh, before I let you go, uh, we, we were, as you mentioned, uh, we still have a ways to go in hurricane. Well, when when, uh, when is uh, hurricane season officially over? Is it end of September? Um, that, I believe, would be November the 1st. November the 1st, end of October. Is there, a, is there any reason... Uh, to believe, you know, uh, like the wildfire season has been expanded several months in uh, in recent years. Um, couldn't the same be true for uh, for the hurricane season that it might be longer and that we 
could expect even more storms uh, before we before we call it for the year. Is is that a possibility? Well, uh, let's let's look back at uh, Sandy in two thousand twelve. Uh, don't forget that that was a Halloween storm. Uh-huh. And let's see the old climate guys. I'll try to look up something as I talk here. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I am I am not quite sure if the, the hurricane season officially ends on November the first or December first. I don't know. But but uh, yes, Sandy came in as a hybrid system into New York City, and uh, there were possibilities that that could be coming in as a three. Mm-hmm. So not too long ago, we have precedent for a strong uh, uh, hurricane hitting even the northeast as late as Halloween, and back in 2005, the year Katrina came in, we had hurricanes in the Atlantic uh, all the way going in, going through the, the winter, and it's not mm. a precedent to see hurricanes in December and January. Mm. Not likely to hit the United States, but you can get some, uh, you might get a hurricane or two uh, uh, out of season coming up close to the United States, uh, I'd say as late as November the 1st. Yeah. Um, maybe not this year, but 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 mm-hmm. in you know the next few years. Yeah, and I I recall uh, speaking with uh, since you mentioned our friend Michael Mann, uh, talking with him on the show a few years ago that uh, climate change has really uh, you know changed. Uh, not not just the climate, but change the weather patterns, the things that we used to be able to rely on. Uh, you know, you mentioned the the steering currents and how those are different now. I think we were speaking with uh, uh, Mike Mann uh, about the the California drought at the time and the blocking system that was off uh, off the coast of California and just all of the assumptions that we have made for so long about the weather and all the models that we have in some respects uh, all bets are off as the climate seems to be changing before i let you go would you agree with that uh, concern at least among uh, climatologists oh absolutely and if you uh, examine the scientific words just climate mm-hmm. and change if you just look at those two words climate is whether that we would expect as we go through seasons from year to year to year to year but if it's changing then we can't really expect that particular weather that we're used to. And all bets are off. Guy Walton, uh, you can find him on the Twitters. You should follow him there. He is ClimateGuyW. And uh, you can find his uh, daily extreme, uh, <laughs> I forget what you even call it. <laughs> extreme Temperature Diary. There we go. Extreme Temperature Diary. Thank you very much. Uh, on the web, GuyOnClimate.com. Guy Walton, always great to talk to my friend. Maybe we'll do it when there's not a uh, storm ravaging us uh, one of these days. Thank you, brother. Well, thank you so much, Brad, for having me. You bet. Okay, let me take a quick break, and we'll come back with some, I think, better news uh, regarding an election story that we have been covering for a while. I Well, you'll see why I say I think, but I'm pretty sure. Good news straight ahead. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener-supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. Please drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. 
Welcome back. It's the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Good to have you here. The uh, We discussed last week, we actually have some good news here. Uh, we, we discussed last week that the DNC at their summer meeting uh, had voted against allowing a climate change debate among this year's 2020 presidential candidates. This is not the good news portion, uh, <laughs> but for some reason they're they're not they're not allowing it. They will allow town hall forums where the candidates do not appear on stage together or rebut each other and each other's plans. That is. Uh, not as good, at least in my opinion, as would be an actual debate. I don't know. True. How do you feel about it, Desiree? Uh, well, there's a couple of things. Uh, an actual debate is something that is more watched by the public than any of these mm-hmm. forums. So in that respect, yes, you would get a far higher public engagement to actually hear what these ideas are, the science, so that people understand the gravity of the situation and the scope of what needs to be done and how fast it needs to be done. However... And they would be able to rebut each other's plans. Exactly. So we could sort of pick and choose from... yeah, And get a sense of the comparative plans that they have, which right. you can't do if they don't actually talk to each other. But, you know, there's also the issue of the corporate media, as it is currently constituted, how bad they run these climate debates and they frame them in ways that bring ratings and conflict but don't illuminate the pro- the subject and the problem. Well, in the meantime, fair enough, uh, there is one of these town hall forums going on uh, on Wednesday night. Uh, I think this is the one on, on CNN between yes. the uh, Democratic presidential candidates. Not between them, but one after another. Uh, and it will be on CNN and it will be, wait for it, seven hours long. I guess they're giving each person like 30 minutes or something like that. Yeah, give or take commercials and stuff. So, I mean, how will anybody possibly be able to take all of that in? Seven hours. They won't. Uh, Now, there is some upside there. At least there's a good chance that you will turn on CNN randomly on Wednesday night and hear something about our climate crisis. So there's that. Uh, Also, it would, you know, it'll thoroughly get these folks, I would hope, on the record with their full plans for, you know, later use, perhaps. Um, So anyway, I think that's a dumb decision by the DNC to not allow an actual climate debate, given that Democrats say that this is the existential crisis of our time. And it is. Um, But during that same gathering a week or so ago, the DNC, they made a better decision, I think, a much better decision, uh, at least by the DNC Rules and Bylaws Committee, even if they really had no choice but to make it at this point, it seems to me. The Democratic National Committee has raised substantial cybersecurity concerns over virtual caucusing, potentially dooming the effort by Democrats just five months before Iowa begins its process of choosing a presidential nominee, according to Bloomberg. At a closed-door session of the Rules and Bylaws Committee about a week or so ago, the DNC told the panel that experts convened by the party were able to hack into a conference call among the committee, raising concerns about using teleconferencing for virtual caucusing during the Iowa and Nevada Democratic caucuses coming up in February. As we have been warning about for several months now, since we tend to cover the track conditions as much as or more than the horse race, uh, for the first time, the DNC is requiring, uh, well, first they're encouraging states to do primaries instead of caucusing. Uh, because, you know, a lot a lot of people can't 
get to a caucus during these certain hours that you have to be there and you have to remain there for a number of hours to participate. Especially the elderly, single parents with children who have to arrange for child care, stuff right. like that. So they're, you know, encouraging these states to, instead of have caucuses, have primaries. Well, Iowa and Nevada still want to have their caucuses. So uh, the DNC basically said if you're going to have a caucus, you have to have some sort of remote option or some kind of option that uh, broadens participation. I think the participation in the Iowa caucus uh, in 2016 was something like 16 percent. Pathetic. Um, Because people just can't do that kind of a commitment. So if you're going to hold a caucus, the DNC, DNC said you have to figure out some way to expand it to allow people who can't get there on caucus day or caucus night to participate. And one of the ways they were thinking of doing it in these various states, they were leaving it up to the states to decide, but they were going to do it via some sort of remote teleconferencing thing, which, as it turns out, when they got together to discuss it a week or so ago via a teleconference, that teleconference was actually hacked. So uh, the plan by Iowa and Nevada to build a teleconference system for 2020 uh, seems like it was on pretty thin ground at that point. And it all now seems to be crashing down entirely. Uh, thank, and I would say, thankfully, given the insecurity of by phone or online remote caucusing and voting. The test of the new systems that Iowa and Nevada were planning to use, I'm sorry, Nevada, uh, and the uh, revelation of hacking. Apparently, this enraged party officials in the caucus states who say that the systems were not fully built yet. And the hack of a general teleconferencing system is is totally different, not comparable. The state party uh, officials in those two states also said that they were continuing to address any potential vulnerabilities as they build the system. Oh, well, take your time. As you build it, you'll work these things out. I'm sure it will be fine. What could possibly go wrong on caucus day? The virtual caucusing rules were developed in response to recommendations from the Unity Reform Commission. Remember that? Created to address the tension between delegates uh, for uh, nominee Hillary Clinton and challenger Bernie Sanders back in 2016. Uh, Well, now it's all but official a week later. The remote caucusing requirement from the DNC looks as if it will be mercifully scrapped, at least for 2020. According to Washington Post, Democratic officials moved on Friday to block plans to allow caucus goers to vote by phone in Iowa and Nevada next year because of concerns that the technology could be hacked casting doubt on the party's ability to expand participation in some of these early voting states. Well, I am delighted to hear this because we have uh, we did several shows on this over the past few months and nobody else was talking about it, trying to let people know, hey, the DNC is doing something stupid again. Let's stop them before they actually do it. And uh, now, well, it looks like they are stopping themselves. A memo from the uh, DNC chair, Tom Perez, And the co-chairs of the Rules and Bylaws Committee recommended against the addition of a virtual caucus option. Internal security and technology analysts working with outside experts found there was no teleconference system that met security standards, quote, given the scale needed for the Iowa and Nevada caucuses and the current cybersecurity climate. Well, gosh, who could have told them that months ago? 
They should listen to the broadcast. They should. Maybe they do. Maybe <laughs> that's why they're suddenly getting smarter over there. The recommendation sets up a meeting now. There'll have to be another meeting of the Rules and Bylaws Committee to figure out what to do. They will have the ultimate say over the plan. Uh, but it is unlikely to deviate from the guidance of its leadership, which said, yeah, go ahead and let them not do this. Uh, a vote to scrap plans for a virtual caucus would illustrate the difficulty involved in engaging more voters in the nominating contest, which had been a major aim of the Democratic Party and a, a laudable uh, claim, frankly, uh, aim. But this way, doing it remotely, that's not the way to do it. They could have just said, hey, you know what, Iowa, we know you love your caucuses, but we'd like everyone in Iowa to be able to vote. So y'all got to do a primary instead of a caucus. They could have done that. They didn't do that. Um, Frank Leone, a member of the Rules and Bylaws Committee from Virginia, said there's simply too great a potential for hacking and abuse. There was also unease, he said, that the technology would prove too cumbersome for voters to understand. Rules that the DNC approved last year had pressed the caucus states to convert to a primary system, which at least nine states apparently have done, just not Iowa and Nevada and I think Alaska. Uh, or they had to come up with a way to uh, allow voters to participate without attending the hours-long meeting, sometimes in biting temperatures, Washington Post notes. Iowa and Nevada responded to the new DNC requirements with plans for this call-in option, but as AP reports now, Democrats' plans for virtual presidential caucusing in Iowa and Nevada are effectively dead. DNC Chair Tom Perez said, We concur with the advice of the DNC security expert that there is no telecaucusing system available that meets our standard of security. Uh, so this all, for the moment, leaves Iowa and Nevada and their state parties in limbo without clarity on how they're going to meet the uh, National Party's requirement or whether they will get a waiver from the National Party. We'll find out. Uh, the uh, Democratic, the Iowa Democratic Party chair, Troy Price, uh, said he would comply with the DNC decision, but that he wouldn't speculate on any potential alternatives to the plan that the party had originally put in place. He also expressed confidence that Iowa would not have to scrap the caucuses overall or lose its status as the first state in the nation to express a presidential preference. It's unclear how exactly the elimination of the telecaucus option now will affect candidate strategy, reports AP. Conversations with campaign aides in Iowa and Nevada suggest most campaigns had not done much planning around the virtual caucus yet because the exact process for how it, were, how it was, was going to work had not yet been approved. But they quote at least uh, one candidate, former Housing Secretary Julian Castro, who called the DNC's decision to scrap the virtual caucus, quote, an affront to the principles of our democracy. Really, really, Julian, you know, I would say it affirms the principles of democracy to not allow any kind of voting by a system that could be hacked and, you know, result in absolute chaos for the Democrats, especially at the already chaotic Iowa caucuses, frankly, and at the very first voting of the 2020 Democratic primary uh, nominating contest. Yeah. Do you really want a disaster there, Julian? Do you really want somebody being able to hack into the first? 
you know, and, uh, you know, early on, I thought uh, Julian, uh, well, I wasn't interested in him. Then I thought he did a pretty decent job at the debates, particularly the second debate. Uh, so I unscratched him off my list, <laughs> put him back on. So uh, now, uh, far be it for me to tell you how to uh, vote in the primaries, but just please note, Julian Castro says it is, quote, an affront to the principles of our democracy to not allow unsecure remote teleconference voting in the caucuses. Just keep that in mind. Uh, the folks in Nevada, by the way, uh, are not much happier about uh, about all of this since they had been making plans. For example, Artie Blanco, uh, who's on the uh, rules committee from Nevada, she said um, that uh, plans for telecaucus involved creating new technology that doesn't exist yet. So that would have been good. What would have been? What's wrong with that? She said that she's hopeful, nonetheless, that Dems will work to create it by 2024. She said we attempted to do this process to allow for others to participate, and she's hopeful that the DNC will work with states to develop the technology. Well, here's some technology for it. They could just hold a primary in Nevada instead of a caucus, and that would allow all voters across the state to vote. Of course, in Nevada, they use 100% unverifiable touchscreen voting systems across the entire state, so they don't much care for their voters as is. So, really, that wouldn't be much better, would it? Good luck, Nevada. Anyway, uh, I think this is a victory for the most part. We will take our victories one at a time wherever we can find them these days. Speaking of victories, uh, some breaking news uh, during our last break. It looks like North Carolina, a state court there, has ordered the state's Republican gerrymandered uh, House districts to be redrawn for the 2020 election, if I got that right. Someone just sent me the ruling uh, literally minutes ago. I've yet to read it or see any news about it, but it looks good if I'm reading this right. You can look forward to more on that, I suspect, and I think it's very good news on our next thrilling broadcast. Until then, my thanks to Desi Doyen, our producer, and to my guest today, Climate Guy, Guy Walton of GuyOnClimate.com, and to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's show, download it anytime for free at Bradblog.com. That is thanks to those of you who support our work uh, by stopping by Bradblog.com slash donate. Thank you. Also, you can drop me an email. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am simply what? The Brad Blog. That's it. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. <laughs> <laughs>